Jason Jackson, and um, I am the next speaker on today's schedule. It's a pleasure to be here with all of the folks here at Northwestern and to be communicating with folks out in the ether. Uh, having John as our first speaker today is an uh, amazing setup for not only the remainder of the program in general, but the things I'd like to do with my part of it in particular. Um, John has provided a, a really broad and impactful overview of the open access space, and what I'm going to try to do in my remarks is to discuss a middle level of process and change and use some specific examples to illustrate some of the kinds of things that are happening in the, the neighborhood in which I'm working. So the first thing I want to do is to note that I'm not a technologist and I'm not a lawyer and I'm not uh, in any formal sense a publisher. Um, my role is as a professor of folklore and ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Um, but I come to these questions with my own disciplinary background in the fields of folklore studies and anthropology as part of the mix. My work may seem to you quite distant from the kinds of concerns that you may have or that have brought us together today. Um, in my work, I am primarily an ethnographer. That means I spend time out in the world talking to people about their ways of life. Um, in particular, I work among Native American peoples in the state of Oklahoma and in the United States. I mean, the, my work focuses on questions which have to do with cultural forms, cultural values, ideas, and the way that those ideas circulate in social contexts, circulating within groups of people and between groups of people. Um, if you think about it, that's a kind of framework for what we're going to be talking about um, today. It provides a kind of intellectual backdrop to, that motivates my interest in these kinds of questions. At a more specific level, though, my involvement in open access and in publishing questions today stems from about the year 2005 when I became the editor of a journal called Museum Anthropology. Museum Anthropology is a publication of the American Anthropological Association, which is a large scholarly society in the United States. When I began publishing that journal, it was published in partnership with the University of California Press, a prominent university press in the United States. During the time of my editorship, the publications program of that society changed it um, reoriented its business model, and it took up a new partnership with the commercial publisher Wiley Blackwell. Um, this is an allusion to some of the things that John introduced, and that I'll come back to in a moment. Scholarly societies are an important part of the considerations we're looking at. One of the things that happened, though, during that time of editing Museum Anthropology was that all of this uh, strain that the association experienced and that many association experiences experienced during this, the early part of the last decade um, were very eye-opening for me, and they led me to, um, to understand more clearly what was happening in the scholarly publishing domain. So as my editorship of Museum Anthropology concluded for a number of reasons, I went on to found um, a journal called Museum Anthropology Review, which is, which is published today, and I continue to edit that journal. By, it's published by the Indiana University Libraries as part of that library's IU ScholarWorks project. It's a, a library-based scholarly publishing program. And so a lot of the things I'm going to be commenting on today stem from my experience in these editorial contexts. It's important to know um, from the, uh, in connection to John's comments that the, the legal technology that the Creative Commons has developed is a fundamental part of our ability to do what we do in the context of Museum Anthropology Review and many journals like it. So this brings us to the question, a uh, point that John uh, 
brought forward earlier, what in general is open access? He's done a very fine job of setting that up, so I can be very brief. All I need to do, I think, is to point you to the fact that there are a number of resources on the web that can help you make sense of what this domain of open access is all about. Uh, this is a definition based on the Budapest Declaration um, that, John, uh, that Peter Suber has provided on a very rich website that he maintains relative to open access. He's a, <coughs> one of a number of leaders in that field. Um, having already set that up, I can move on to some specifics. In the domain of open access uh, um, that John introduced, um, in the current moment, there are two main varieties of open access that I want to highlight for you. And keep in mind, we're starting with a, um, from the point of view of the scholarly journal, journal article as a genre. There are a number of ways that scholars communicate. This is just one of them. Um, I'll, in a bit, I'll talk about the ways in which that genre itself is changing. But for the moment, let's treat the scholarly journal as we've inherited it from the past as our center of gravity. There are two main ways today in which scholarly journals are made available in an open access context. I just want to highlight those for you. The first are what um, insiders call gold open access journals. An example of this would be First Monday, as well as Museum Anthropology Review, the journal that I edit. The key thing about a, a gold open access journal is that it's a journal that's born digital, but it's also born open. If you have access to the internet, and we know that not everyone does, but if you do, you can go online straight to the publisher of this website and interact with the journal itself in an open framework. It's there for you 24 hours a day waiting um, to be consulted. This, is, this obviously speeds up um, the research process in a lot of ways that we'll talk about today. The other main way in which the scholarly journal literature is made open is um, in the framework that uh, insiders call green open access. What that means is that a work has been published maybe in a more legacy way. You've sent an article as an author to a, to a publisher that is not themselves an open access publisher, but you've retained through various legal mechanisms the right yourself to make that content open. Um, and you'll do that outside of the frameworks usually provided by the, your publisher, although some publishers have the mechanism by which you can pay to make your content open with them, in essence, a kind of opt-in for gold. But generally, the way this works is that your work will be published by the publisher in print and online, but also um, in an institutional repository, in a disciplinary repository, or less good, in my, from my point of view, on an individual website of your own. The key thing here is you're securing the rights to do this thing separate from what your publisher does. Um, this is a, an article that colleagues and I published. We retained the rights to it, and we made it available in the IU ScholarWorks repository. Um, and this is a, a common phenomenon around the world. <laughs> Our topic today focuses on students and education, so I want to uh, point in that direction for a moment. How does open access impact students? There's an obvious way and a secondary way that I just want to highlight briefly. The obvious way is that, like researchers, students um, benefit from having access to the published scholarly literature. Even in the most well-resourced um, research universities in the developed world, libraries can only provide a tiny portion of the total journal literature to students and faculty on those campuses. It's just not physically, financially, computationally, organizationally possible to provide access to the entire total access literature because you've got to pay for that access a la carte or in bundles. So open access makes more, of the, more scholarship available to teachers and to students, and that has obvious educational effects. The, the other point, though, that I want to make is that who pays the bills um, for that total access scholarly literature? We tend to think about this as in terms of libraries, but libraries are funded by universities. Universities are funded significantly by tax dollars in some cases, but by tuition costs in almost every case. 
which means that students are picking up the tab for the scholarly literature that some universities are able to provide, but not all. And <clears throat> there's also another um, party to this, um, this dynamic, and that's scholarly societies, and we'll come back to them in a minute. That discussion is a widespread one, and there are more articulate voices than mine on that issue. The piece that I want to focus on very briefly is that there are other kinds of constituencies who have a very strong interest in the future of open access scholarly communication. The, the case that gets talked about often is uh, uh, folks who are interested in the medical literature, patients and pati patients' rights advocates who feel that they need and have good reason to need access to the scholarly literature in medicine because it's so close to home. That has been one of the motivations which has led to the NIH uh, policies which ensure public access to federally funded uh, medical research in the United States, but that, gen that principle extends beyond medicine. In my own field, I'm an ethnographer, which means that I learn about the world by going out into it and talking to people of goodwill who are willing to share their life experiences with me. This is an ethical issue for my field. If you spend time sharing your knowledge with me, I encode that knowledge in a written article, but then you and your descendants, your grandkids don't have access to that, there's an ethical break, right? So the ethnography as one kind of research method um, leads to ethical considerations which motivate open access separate from technology and um, financial considerations. Really quickly, an, another instance of this is um, practitioner fields. Um, a, a good one to think about is social work. Lots and lots of social workers in the world, most of them don't have access to the literature in social work unless that literature is made open. So that fields like that have a built-in motivation to connect in open access ways. There are lots of reasons to motivate people to being involved in open access um, publishing. We could spend a day talking about the, all of those motivations. The point that I want to make, as a, and I'm speaking here as a folklorist and an anthropologist, as a person who spends time with people, is that those motivations can be really diverse. Sometimes they can be contradictory. Oftentimes they can be diverse but aligned so that people with different sensibilities can work towards the same projects. Librarians look at these issues differently than, um, than scholars who look at them differently than technologists, but there are alliances that can be made. Um, in essence, I'm making an argument for complexifying the motivations that we identify as relevant for work in open access. So I'm about halfway through, and what I want to do now is talk about some innovations. This is more frontline stuff, which might be inspirational. It might um, uh, provide substance for discussion and questions. There are three innovations that I want to highlight, and these are um, spaces in which uh, I have firsthand kinds of experiences to draw upon. Um, I'm going to start by thinking about the, the concept of genre. We began thinking about the history of the journal article as a type of scholarly communication. It's a genre. Genres, from a folklorist or a literature person's point of view, have certain kinds of characteristics, right? Um, they're recognizable. You know a knock-knock joke when you hear one, right? Um, but and they have boundaries because they have characteristics. At the same time, they bleed into one another. Sometimes they bleed into one another more often than others. We're living in a time in which the conventional assumptions about what a scholarly journal, journal are are changing because other kinds of modes of communication are bleeding in. So we are in a productive time of hybridization. And I want to talk a bit about that just for a minute. The students in my home department since the 1960s have published a journal called Folklore Forum. Folklore is a small field, so this has become a prominent journal. The first order of business for the current generation of edit student editors of that journal was to work to make the back files open. They used an institutional repository to do that, so the entire run of Folklore Forum is available to you or to your students. 
In the present, though, they've become a gold open access journal. It's born open, born digital. One of the things that the digital environment allows for is to, the, is to change the nature of the article as a genre. This can be really innovative. It can involve data and mashups and mining and all kinds of technical things. But it can also be relatively simple, bringing two genres together. So the conference poster is a genre that's prominent in many, but not all scholarly fields. Oftentimes, a poster is an important uh, event in a scholar's uh, career, um, but it tends to get presented and then rolled up and put under the bed. Eventually, that work goes on to be published in an article. But what about those posters? Where do they go? Some of them are really good. Some of them do work in and of themselves. So what the students at Folklore Forum have begun doing is peer-reviewing conference poster submissions and then publishing them. Um, the technology makes that very easy. So here is the first po uh, poster published in Folklore Forum. If you click on that right image at the center of the page, it blows up big, and you can look at it in, in close-up detail. If you really, really want to, you can take it down to Kinko's and print out your own giant copy of that poster for the conference that you didn't get to go to. Um, <laughs> Because this, is a, because this is a Web 2.0 context, you can also comment on it um, and enter into dialogue with the author. These are innovations which the technology allow for today. And they're not grand, they're not giant, they're just current day hybridizations. Another one has to do with um, the languages of scholarship. Um, in the time that I was editing Museum Anthropology, and that's a relatively small society journal, um, the cost of um, uh, Taking away all the subsidies, the cost of publishing an article in that journal was about four to five thousand dollars. If you added in the subsidies, it goes off the roof, uh, um, through the roof. But it, it's a, it's an expensive proposition publishing as we've known it. It would have been just simply financially impossible to publish an article in more than one language. But of course, we know that the world doesn't all speak English and shouldn't all speak English. At least it shouldn't, from my point of view. Um, my field's all about diversity. So the technology, if you take away print and you take away a, a lot of the other aspects of our inherited publication model, it's much easier to do things like publish in bilingual editions. And my journal has begun doing this. Um, the licensing that John introduced also makes this possible because I don't have to centrally coordinate translations. If someone in Bulgaria wishes to translate this French article, which we just published, they can get on with that work without having to be deeply involved in the organization that initially published it. The legal tools make that possible. The technological tools make that possible. Social arrangements make that possible. Finally, if we're thinking about the genre of the article, we can move in the direction that John was pointing us to, which is to, is to change the terms in a more dramatic kind of way. Um, this is uh, an article, if you will, from a journal called uh, Vectors, published by USC. And there's a piece of work published by my scholarly collaborator, Kimberly Christen. It's called Digital Dynamics Across Culture. It's a work that explores intellectual property issues from the point of view of the Wurrumungu people of uh, Australia in, in indigenous society. The key um, point for today, though, is that this project that Kim Christen did is a complex, media-rich digital production. It's not predicated on the legacy format of the article or of the poster or anything that came from a pre-digital moment, um, but it's a peer-reviewed piece of scholarly content. It has an argument. It has data. It's trying to do work in the world. It's been vetted in a conventional peer review process and made available in something that we can call a journal, um, but not a journal like our advisors' advisors knew. <laughs> so 
What I want to do now is talk about another kind of activity in this space that I'm involved in. I call this the race to open legacy content, open here in, in the sense of a verb. Um, there are a lot of journals that have been published over the years that don't yet have a digital in, uh, existence. Sometimes those journals are still published in print-only formats. Sometimes they've stopped being published, but they exist uh, in the library waiting to be uh, attended to. More, uh, in the kind of environment that we work in today, if you can't find work online, many, but not all, researchers won't attend to it. Um, in some ways, the ability to deal with the non-digital content is what we most want, for instance, out of our graduate students in many disciplines. But that doesn't mitigate the fact that getting um, important content digitized is a really crucial activity. Um, I call this a race because there are those who would like to see a lot of this legacy content digitized, but digitized in a way that um, is most likely to generate profits through enclosure. But from a scholarly point of view, that's not always necessary. And from my point of view, it's not advantageous. So in the field of folklore studies, the American Folklore Society and the Indiana University Libraries are working on a project to bring into the digital domain um, this kind of legacy journal content. Um, and we're doing that as part of the Hathi Trust Digital Library Project. Um, these are works that have already been digitized. They're just hiding um, behind a wall that's a creation of uh, copyright law. So what we're doing is working with rights holders to make this content open. All we need to do is to manage the legal aspects of that in order to, in essence, flip the switch, make this kind of content available more widely. Um, there's all kinds of technological and social arrangements by which this work can be done. And I know that one of the motivations for our gathering today is that Apple has an interest um, in this kind of thing. So we may talk a bit about that later today. Um, but if you're not familiar with Hati Trust, it's a, a valuable resource. Finally, the last innovation that I want to talk about is not one of my own, and it's not one that I can actually point to yet and say, here, see these folks, what they're doing. Um, but the, the staff and uh, folks behind the Connections Project at Rice University have been advocating for an approach to journal editing, which is very different from what we've inherited from our ancestors. Um, some of you may know, know Connections already. If you don't, Connections' main focus as a project is to build a set of digital and legal tools using Creative Commons, amongst other things, to make open courseware available. It's a place to, in essence, easily write modules for courses that can be assembled into textbooks, um, of an, uh, open textbooks, open course materials um, in general. The argument that the Connections folks are making, though, is that journal editing itself can become a much more curatorial process. Um, and this is a bit tricky to talk about because we have to talk about it in the abstract. But the, the principles that work here are predicated on things they've built inside of the connection system. One of them is the notion of a lens. A lens is a way of marking submitted comment as having been validated and approved, recommended by a particular group of people um, whose reputation has some meaning within a particular space. To give you a, a kind of concrete example, if someone were to, a group of people were to write an open textbook in economics, if the Scholarly Society in Economics carefully reviews that textbook after the fact, it could endorse that text as one that's met uh, a standard of valid validity and accuracy and worthiness for its um, endorsement. The same principle would apply to journals. Authors would contribute content, curator, uh, Editors would be like curators working their way through that content, finding the best stuff to call to the attention of their scholarly community. So if we think about a work of art in an actual museum, a curator goes out into the world and finds a work of art to share with an audience. 
they validate that work as important in the curatorial process. Um, in some ways, editors already do this, but the Connections proposal takes this a step further because that work that's validated by one editor could be validated by another editor. It could, in essence, have the mandate of support from two or three or four or five journals, all of whom have evaluate, evaluated that content and are highlighting it for you, the reading public's attention. So uh, this curatorial model is in the mix. The last thing I want to do, and I'll end here, and I've got a half a minute to do it, is to, um, is to reflect on a couple holdups. And the, the basic point that I want to make to you is that the holdups are no longer legal. We have a legal pathway. The holdups are not economic, although there are economic questions in the mix. Um, they're mainly social challenges, right? They have to do with people and values, usually um, inherited values, which have come down to us from the past. As a folklorist, I care about that stuff. I mean, I'm sympathetic and respectful of it. But here are two domains in which this is at issue. Scholarly societies, again, are really, really important. They do much work above and beyond their publishing work in the academic space. They, they represent professions, and they do things that only they can do. But that, extra, that important non-publishing work today is largely funded by publications programs. Because it's funded by publications programs, it means non-practitioners in that field are largely picking up the tab for the work of scholarly societies. From a librarian's point of view, from a student's point of view, from a taxpayer's point of view, this seems like a strange, un unsustainable place to be. Um, I don't have an answer to this, but what I'm suggesting is that scholarly societies have a big job ahead of them, figuring out how they're going to negotiate not only the publishing questions, but the very existence of scholarly societies as a problem is up in the air. It's not to say that they're going to go away, but they're going to be different. It seems very likely that in the era of Facebook and Twitter, scholarly societies connect scholars in a different way than they did in the 18th or 19th centuries. The other holdup in here is a place where I'm more optimistic, has to do with tenure and promotion, right? And uh, for those of you who live in academia, I don't need to go into tremendous detail about this, but tenure promotion is about evaluating the success of a scholar. We've tended to rely upon conventional genres and conventional hallmarks of productivity to make those decisions, but in a new media landscape that changes the terms of the discussion. Here, though, I'm more hopeful. I think there are those who have seen this as a real roadblock, but all around the country, I see scholarly societies, subfields, disciplines, university departments making innovative um, changes, adapting to the changing publishing landscape so that I'm a little more hopeful that this problem is going to be solved in the short rather than medium or long term. With that, I will conclude and say thank you.